Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, May 16th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Melissa Topshire. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Erdogan and Kalik Darolu face an unprecedented runoff in Turkey's election. The opposition dominates the vote in Thailand's election. Documents reveal that Zelensky allegedly pushed for attacks inside Russia. China jails a U.S. citizen for life on espionage charges. Vice Media files for bankruptcy. Cyclone Mocha batters Myanmar. Google says AI shouldn't be considered an inventor. China launches a new era marriage and childbearing initiative. New York City opens its first asylum seeker center for migrants. A study finds talking to babies may help shape their brain structure. And a Florida scientist breaks the record for the longest time spent underwater. Our first story brings us to Turkey's elections, where Erdogan and Kalikdarolu face an unprecedented runoff. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Fox News, The Daily Sabah, Al Jazeera, and BBC News. Turkey's Supreme Election Council on Monday announced that the presidential election is going to a runoff for the first time in history. As incumbent Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu failed to pass the threshold of 50% of the vote. The closely watched presidential race, which has focused on domestic issues such as the economy, governance, civil rights, and the handling of a deadly earthquake in February, will now be decided on May 28th. With 99.87% of the votes counted and tallies still in flux, Erdogan was leading with 49.5% of the vote, with Kalikdarolu second at 44.89%, according to the Anadolu Agency. Nearly 87% of the more than 64 million people eligible to cast a ballot at home and overseas voted. People's Alliance candidate Erdogan, who is seeking a third consecutive presidential term, has been in power for two decades, while Kalikdarolu is the unity candidate of the six-party opposition camp Nation Alliance. In the two-week run-up to the second round, both sides are expected to court the third candidate, Sinan Awan, who got 5% of the vote, even though it's uncertain whether his voters would follow Awan's suggestion. Preliminary results provided by the Anadolu Agency also indicate that the ruling People's Alliance has garnered the most votes for Parliament. Melissa, thanks for the facts of that story. During this podcast, we always separate the spins from the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from Responsible Statecraft. The Turkish people, which have had enough of Erdogan's autocratic rule, can vote to establish the rule of law, rebuild Turkey's economy, and slash inflation and unemployment while introducing greater checks and balances by strengthening parliament. Most importantly, Kalic Darolu promises a less polarized, more peaceful society that can celebrate its cultural diversity rather than vilify it. And Narrative B comes from TRT World. Preliminary results have shown that the Turkish voters are the masters of their own destiny, despite rogue efforts by the international media to influence the Turkish people to vote against Erdogan and the ruling People's Alliance by openly calling for them to be ousted. Such attempts to interfere with a nation's sovereignty, which have been recurring over the years, are unacceptable. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 70% chance that Recep Tayyip Erdogan will win the 2023 presidential election in Turkey. 
Hey, you know what? No matter who wins, it's just nice to see the people of Turkey exercising their right to vote. Seems like they have a really good voter turnout there. Yeah, it sounded like, you know, they made a point to say even people out overseas cast their absentee ballots. So, yeah, that's great. Go Turkey. <laughs> Go fight win. <laughs> that's, that's how we do politics in America, right? It's sports. That's, that's politics right. Politics is sports. That's right. Everybody gets a trophy, right? Oh, yeah. Well, in Washington, they do. In Washington, everyone oh, gets a trophy. That's right. I mean, the, I mean the state of Washington. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Election news continues in Thailand as opposition dominates the vote. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, Nation Thailand, BBC News and CNN. Thai voters on Sunday overwhelmingly backed the opposition parties in nationwide elections in a blow to the military-aligned establishment that has been ruling Thailand since 2014. With 99% of the ballots counted on Monday by the Election Commission, Move Forward and Few Thai looked set to win 151 and 141 seats respectively in the 500-member parliament. As it became clear that his United Thai Nation Party had been defeated, Prime Minister Prayuth Chanocha, who took over the country in a coup nearly a decade ago, expressed his hopes for peace and development in Thailand and vowed to respect democracy in elections. The progressive Move Forward's Harvard and MIT-educated leader Pita Limjarenrat announced Sunday that his readiness to become prime minister, with his party agreeing on Monday to form a ruling coalition with Fu Tai, the country's largest opposition party of the past two decades. Despite Fu Tai's agreement to form a coalition with Move Forward and four smaller opposition parties, the potential bloc of more than 60% of seats in the new parliament may not be sufficient to outvote the 250 military-appointed senators who can join the vote in the next administration. This election was the first since youth-led mass protests rocked the country in 2020, demanding democratic and military reforms, an overhaul of the monarchy, and constitutional changes. It's the only second since Prayuth installed himself as prime minister. Turnout was reportedly the highest on record at 75.2%. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that story, and we'll begin this round of narratives with the narrative A from Khao Saad. This election only offered the illusion of democracy, because the military-aligned establishment has already secured a third of the votes for the next prime minister long before the first ballot was cast. It had also already appointed all the nine members of the Constitutional Court, which determines when parties are dissolved. The opposition may have won the vote, but it's unlikely that this reflection of popular support will enable them to appoint the next prime minister. Narrative B comes from Council on Foreign Relations. Though the pro-military Senate could indeed join forces with smaller parties to block a make-forward Futai coalition, and it's true that it has appointed judges that can disqualify candidates and parties, this election has shown such strong popular support for the opposition camp that it is very unlikely that the establishment will scheme such chicaneries. Well, first two stories putting up a fight with the opposition. It's an interesting election cycle, I guess. It is. I really hope they don't scheme such chicaneries. I hate when people scheme chicaneries. I don't know about you, Melissa. You know, scheme anything but chicaneries, <laughs> because whenever I hear the word chicaneries, which I absolutely know what it means, 
and didn't have to look it up. <laughs> I just, you know, it, it riles me up, Eric. I know, and I run, you know. Yeah, you run. Chicanery's <laughs> coming. <laughs> <laughs> In our next story, documents reveal that Zelensky allegedly pushed for a tax inside of Russia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Washington Post, The Associated Press, and BBC News. Despite assurances to Western countries that Ukraine wouldn't use their weapons shipments to attack territory inside Russia, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reportedly pushed for such attacks in private talks, going as far as proposing that Ukraine attempt to occupy Russian border cities to give it leverage in later negotiations. The revelations were reportedly leaked on the platform Discord. Zelensky's proposals come from U.S. intelligence documents reported on by the Washington Post as part of its continued coverage of the trove of leaked Pentagon documents that surfaced earlier this year. According to the documents, Zelensky suggested attacks on Russia on multiple occasions. He also suggested blowing up the Soviet-era Druzba pipeline that provides Russian oil to Hungary. That would ostensibly be an attack on a NATO country. In an interview with the Washington Post, Zelensky declined to comment when asked about proposals to invade Russian cities, stating, Let's not get into fantasies. On the question of strikes inside Russia, he said, No one in our country has given orders for offensives or strikes on Russian territories. Further asked about the report while on a European tour that saw Zelensky travel to Rome and the Vatican on Saturday, the Ukrainian leader said, We don't attack Russian territory. We liberate our legitimate territory. We have neither the time nor the strength to attack Russia. And we also don't have weapons to spare with which we could do this. We are preparing a counterattack for the illegally occupied areas based on our constitutionally defined legitimate borders, which are recognized internationally. On Monday, Zelensky also traveled to London, where he met with UK Prime Minister Sunak. Ahead of Zelensky's arrival, Sunak's office said it will be providing Ukraine with hundreds of air defense missiles, as well as long-range attack drones capable of striking targets 120 miles or 200 kilometers away. Zelensky also sought to secure additional military aid from Italy, France, and Germany during his visits. Melissa, thank you for the rundown. Our first spin is an establishment-critical narrative coming from BBC News. Ukraine has no intention of striking Russian territory. It's busy trying to deoccupy Ukrainian land, illegally invaded by the Kremlin. And that is Ukraine's only priority. And here's the establishment-critical narrative from The Washington Post. Despite Zelensky's pledges to not attack Russia, U.S. intelligence documents show that in private talks, he at least considered the idea on more than one occasion. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story as well. It says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will join the European Union before 2024. I mean, there've got to be a lot of things said in private when you're frustrated and the leader of a military. I think uh, many people might have some words behind closed doors oh, yeah. on any side of any war. Surely foul language isn't used. Not in the heat of oh, war. Oh, never, never. And don't call me Shirley. That's my <laughs> okay. grandmother. Okay. <laughs> in our next story, China jails a U.S. citizen for life on espionage charges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, The Japan Times, Al Jazeera, Nikkei Asia, New York Times, and South China Morning Post. On Monday, a 78-year-old U.S. citizen and permanent resident of Hong Kong was sentenced to life in prison on spying charges by a Chinese court in the southeastern city of Suzhou, 
Without elaborating on the charges, the Suzhou Intermediate People's Court announced that Zhang Xing Wanlong was found guilty of espionage and sentenced to life in prison, with his political rights revoked for life. A spokesman for the U.S. Embassy in Beijing said the embassy was aware of reports of the case and referred to the safety of U.S. citizens abroad as the State Department's primary concern, but declined to comment further for privacy reasons. The sentencing of Lung, who was arrested on April 15, 2021, by counterintelligence authorities in Suzhou, comes ahead of U.S. President Biden's trip to Hiroshima, Japan, for the Group of Seven, or G7, summit of major industrialized nations. Prior to his conviction, Chinese authorities in March arrested a Japanese pharmaceutical executive on espionage charges, while last year, a senior editor of a Chinese Communist Party newspaper was detained for allegedly spying for Japan or the U.S. In April, China revised its anti-spying law, broadening its scope by widening the definition of spying and banning the transfer of any data related to what the authorities define as national security. If convicted of espionage, the sentence can range from 11 and a half years to life in prison. Thank you, Eric, for the facts, and we'll start these narrative spins with an anti-China narrative from Washington Post. The dubious ruling in this case is just the latest example of how repressive China's crackdown on individuals and companies has become. The more powerful Beijing becomes, the more authoritarian its behavior becomes, both internally and externally. As a result, China is not only jeopardizing the trust of foreign companies in the world's second-largest economy, but also threatening the liberal democratic U.S.-led order. Global Times gives us a pro-China narrative. No details of the case are yet known, but one thing is certain. China is facing increasingly extensive and complex espionage attacks and related activities on its own soil. As the U.S.-led West expands the espionage activities in China, the PRC has the right and duty to protect its national security through enhanced anti-espionage measures. While the Western media feigns outrage, individuals and companies doing normal and legal business in China have nothing to fear. Vice Media Files for Bankruptcy Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, The New York Times, Bloomberg, and CNBC TV 18. On Monday, Vice Media Group, VMG, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in the Southern District of New York to facilitate its sale to the group of its lenders. A consortium of lenders, including Fortress Investment Group and Soros Fund Management, agreed to provide $20 million to help fund VMG's operations during bankruptcy. If VMG doesn't get higher or better bids in the course of the sale process, which is expected to conclude in the next two to three months, Vice's creditors could buy it for $225 million. Six years ago, VMG was considered to be worth $5.7 billion. According to court documents, the New York-based digital media firm lists its assets and liabilities in the range of $500 million to $1 billion. The bankruptcy filing comes after VMG, whose holdings include Vice News, Motherboard, and Refinery29, canceled its popular TV program Vice News Tonight last month and announced layoffs across its global news business as part of a broader restructuring. In April, BuzzFeed.com also announced that it was shutting down its Pulitzer Prize-winning division BuzzFeed News and that it intended to lay off 15% of its workforce amid a slump in advertising revenue. All right, those were the facts, and we have spins beginning with Narrative A coming from New York Times. 
VMG, like other digital media outlets, believed it would generate substantial online ad revenues by attracting millions of young readers through social media networks. Unfortunately, a bulk of its profits went to tech giants. Vice's bankruptcy is a symptom of both recent and long-term downward trends in the economy at large, and the media industry specifically. It is a reminder that a business tethered to social media for its growth must develop multiple streams of profit beyond just advertising. And The Spectator brings us a narrative B. Though Vice and the media industry may paint the company's bankruptcy as a consequence of economic pressures, in fact, this is the result of Vice's incompetent and greedy leadership. Vice's downfall was inevitable, as one of its founders, Shane Smith, was a con man who convinced investors that VMG was the future of news and entertainment. Smith made money hand over fist while employees were mistreated. Vice was doomed to fail. Not to name names or anything, but Shane Smith! (laughs) (laughs) I would definitely call that a spin. Definitely. He might be biased. I always say it's best to get your news from a nonprofit news source. (laughs) There you go. Perfect segue. In our next story, Cyclone Mocha batters Myanmar. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Associated Press, The Hindu, India Today, and Guardian. At least five people have died in Myanmar after Cyclone Mocha ripped through the Myanmar-Bangladesh coasts on Sunday, destroying hundreds of makeshift Rohingya shelters at the world's largest refugee camp in Bangladesh's Cox's Bazar. The cyclone, which made landfall in Myanmar's Sitwe, capital of Rakhine State, brought wind speeds of over 200 kilometers per hour or 125 miles per hour, blowing roofs off of buildings, uprooting trees, crumpling mobile towers, and cutting off power lines. As seawater raced through streets into many low-lying areas near the shore, more than 4,000 of Sitwe's 300,000 residents were evacuated to other cities. Strong winds also injured over 700 of the approximately 20,000 people sheltered in monasteries, pagodas, and schools in the city. Volunteers said the shelters in Sidway were running out of food as additional residents continued to arrive from the flooded city. Although there haven't been any reports of casualties in Bangladesh, nearly 2,500 houses on the island of St. Martin have been destroyed, leaving thousands homeless. The cyclone is expected to dissipate over northern Myanmar. However, it's still bringing strong winds and heavy rain to the country. As of Monday morning, rescuers had evacuated about 1,000 people trapped by over 3.5 meters of deep seawater along the west coast. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with a narrative A from AP News. Cyclones in the Bay of Bengal are becoming more intense, potent, and destructive because of climate change which is warming the oceans at an alarming speed and allowing cyclones to retain their energy for longer. Bangladesh and Myanmar are particularly threatened because they're low-lying and are home to some of the world's poorest population. DownToEarth.org gives us Narrative B. There's no real evidence that cyclones are arriving more often due to climate change. While some types of extreme weather can be directly attributed to global warming, more research is needed to conclude that climate change directly affects cyclones' frequency and power, as cyclones are unavoidable natural disasters. Policies to boost disaster preparation are crucial to limiting damage once calamity strikes. And there's another nerd narrative, this one's saying that there's a 50% chance that there be at least 2.37 degrees Celsius of global warming by 2100. That is according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Why'd they gotta name it something so delicious? Cyclone Mocha, yeah. Yeah, not to be confused with a Mocha Cyclone, which you get a Dairy Queen, which is oh. delicious. <laughs> and the other one is a horrible natural disaster. 
Google says that AI shouldn't be considered an inventor. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, the National Law Review, and Brookfield Institute. Google, in a new filing, has urged the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, or USPTO, not to consider artificial intelligence technology an inventor under patent law. Since February 14th, the USPTO has been soliciting public comments on issues associated with AI inventorship that may come about as the technology becomes more widely adopted. May 15th marked the deadline to submit a comment. As questions about AI and its use have exploded in recent months, the USPTO is grappling with the question, if an AI system contributes to an invention at the same level as a human who would be considered a joint inventor, is the invention patentable under current patent laws? In its comment to the USPTO, Google said only people should be able to hold patents, even on innovations using AI for assistance. Questions about AI inventorship have worked their way through the courts, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit ruled that only humans can be inventors on a patent in the Thaler v. Vidal case. That case centered around the machine called Dabus, which invented a new version of a beverage container completely independently. Stephen Thaler, the machine's creator, named Dabus as the inventor of the container in his patent filing, which the USPTO rejected. Melissa, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from IP Watchdog. Although it may be hard for many people to comprehend, some AI is capable of having independent, subjective thought or sentence. Unlike most AI, systems like Dabus can create without human prompting and are the sole inventor of a concept. Just as a human inventor does not credit his family, teachers, and mentors as co-inventors for his unique inventions, an AI inventor need not credit its human developer or trainer. And here's Narrative B from Brookings. The lines may be blurring between where human intelligence ends and where AI's unique intelligence begins, but at the end of the day, humans are the ones who invent, and patents should be attributed to those who use AI as an extension of their mind. U.S. law clearly states that only humans can be inventors, and we should not flip the status quo completely on its head. While AI offers tremendous benefits and the ability to create new inventions, human creativity drives innovation. Metaculous Prediction community is giving us their nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that AI systems will become sophisticated enough that they can build, to some specification, a system that can itself do sophisticated programming by October of the year 2026. I imagine this patent case at the core, right? You've got all robots on one side. You've got a man represented by a robot on the other side, right? And then... Right. But what about <laughs> the judge and the confusing. jury? Uh, I don't know. I think my head just exploded. Uh, I know. <laughs> In our next story, China launches a new era marriage and childbearing initiatives. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, WIO News, Global Times, NPR Online News, News 18, and Global Village Space. China's Family Planning Association, the state body for fertility and population measures, has announced it will pilot a project in more than 20 cities to create a so-called new era of family and childbearing culture. According to the Global Times, the pilot was to be launched in tandem with the celebration of the International Day of Families on Monday. China has experienced falling birth and marriage rates since 2017. The Global Times revealed details shared at an event held in the city of Guangzhou on Thursday. 
Measures of the pilot will include encouraging marriage and childbearing at appropriate ages, as well as attempting to curb the high prices of marriage and family life. China maintained a one-child policy from 1980 to 2015, with China's population decreasing for the first time in 60 years by 850,000, according to the National Bureau of Statistics. China has also been overtaken by India as the world's most populous country. China has already begun to roll out a series of new laws to tackle this decline, including tax incentives as well as subsidies for housing and having a third child. Having initiated the program in 20 cities last year, including Beijing, the extension will now include Guangzhou as well as the city of Handan in the Hebei province. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that very interesting story. We'll begin these narrative spins with an anti-China narrative from Al Jazeera. While India has slowly and steadily grown its population, China is now facing a population crisis, having realized its extreme childbirth policies of the past have failed. Now facing an aging population, the country must take lessons from the past and urgently look toward innovative ways to sustain growth and look after an elderly society. Global Times gives us a pro-China narrative for this story. The move is a proactive attempt to reverse the changing perception of younger Chinese generations against the idea of a family. Through extending attempts to generate a family-friendly societal atmosphere, the pilot will show China's youth the possibility to have a healthy equilibrium between family, marriage, career, studies, and general life. And there's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 44% chance that the first human clone will be made in China. Going to have a little stamp on their foot. <laughs> This clone was made in China. <laughs> <laughs> New York City will open an asylum seeker center for migrants. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, CNN, NBC New York, The Gothamist, Huffington Post, and Newsweek. New York City Mayor Eric Adams on Saturday said the city will use the historic Roosevelt Hotel as an arrival center to provide as many as 1,000 rooms for migrants expected to arrive in the coming weeks following the expiration of Title 42, a pandemic-era public health policy that allowed asylum seekers to be turned away from the southern border. As hundreds of migrants are arriving in the city each day, the arrival center will be the city's first and it will double as the ninth Humanitarian Emergency Response and Relief Center. The city is aggressively arranging housing for the migrants who are being placed in hotels and other venues on a temporary basis. Adams said the city has already taken in more than 65,000 migrants, many of whom are asylum seekers, and is asking for federal and state partners for a real decompression strategy. Adams' plans have been somewhat stymied by lawsuits by suburban counties in the New York state. Last week, Adams suspended a legal mandate requiring the city to provide shelter to anyone who needs it and lifted a nightly deadline for them to be housed. One factor further contributing to the surge of migrants has been Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott's sending of buses carrying migrants from Texas to New York with 17,000 asylum seekers being bussed in between April and October last year. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts of that story. We've got two opposing spins, beginning with the Democratic narrative coming from ABC News. New York City needs financial support and housing help from the federal and state governments. But for now, the Adams administration is doing what it can to compassionately care for the uptick in the number of migrants arriving. Migrants should make their way to the Roosevelt while Adams negotiates with his counterparts in other parts of the state to find safe spaces for those seeking asylum. 
And here's a Republican narrative from the New York Post. It's unbelievable how incompetently Democrats have dealt with this migrant crisis. From booting homeless veterans out of shelters to putting migrants in school gymnasiums where they could prove dangerous to children, Adams and the city's leadership seems lost, and there's no telling what they'll do next. According to a recent study, talking to babies may help shape the brain. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, The National, and Guardian. A study has found that toddlers who hear more speech in everyday life have more myelin in language-related areas of their brain. The more one speaks to a toddler, the more it helps their brains to develop in early childhood, the study claims. Myelin is a fatty substance that forms around nerves, including those in the brain. Myelin allows electrical impulses to fire more quickly and efficiently. Lead researcher Professor John Spencer explains, quote, Imagine if you have a hose pipe with lots of holes in it. Myelin is like wrapping the hose pipe with duct tape. It insulates neural fibers, bringing more of the signal from one brain area to the next. Spencer and his researchers from the University of East Anglia used a device fitted inside a vest to record the amount of speech 87 children aged about 6 months and 76 aged about 30 months were exposed to at home. The researchers analyzed over 6,000 hours of language data from children and adults. When the toddlers were asleep, they were placed in an MRI scanner to measure myelin in their brains. The researchers found that the more speech a child heard daily, the more myelin existed in his or her brain, which is likely to support more sophisticated language processing. The study is one of the first to show that listening to speech is associated with brain structure and early development. Thank you, Eric, for the facts on that very interesting story. We'll start our narratives with Narrative A from the University of East Anglia. These exciting new findings could support a more sophisticated understanding of language processing. Although previous work has shown a similar association in four- to six-year-olds, this new research has pushed this association much earlier in development. As the first study of its kind, this offers important foundations for furthering our understanding of childhood development. Narrative B comes from Crystal Run Healthcare. The gist of this knowledge has been around for ages. Parents who engage in reading, singing, and talking with their children build an early foundation for language acquisition. A simple daily activity such as making funny faces while playing or pointing out objects in a book can help infants learn new words. Humans are social creatures. In our final story today, a Florida scientist breaks the record for time spent underwater. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, the Associated Press, the Daily Mail, BBC News, New York Post, and the University of South Florida. U.S. Navy veteran Joe Deturi, an associate professor at the University of South Florida, self-styled Dr. Deep Sea, announced on Sunday that he has broken the record for the longest time lived underwater after spending more than 73 days in Jules Undersea Lodge. 30 feet below the surface of a lagoon in Key Largo, Florida. He plans to stay at the lodge until June 9th, when he reaches 100 days underwater without depressurization and completes the medical and ocean research dubbed Project Neptune 100, which was organized by the Marine Resources Development Foundation. The previous record of 73 days, 2 hours, and 34 minutes was set at the same location in 2014 by Bruce Cantrell and Jessica Fain, two Tennessee professors. 
The 55-year-old Florida scientist whose journey began on March 1st is studying how the human body reacts to long-term exposure to extreme pressure. Researchers have run several medical tests on him. Deturi's hypothesis is that his health will improve due to the extreme pressure, increasing his longevity and preventing aging diseases as he found in a study that cells exposed to more pressure doubled within five days. He hopes that this research will reveal that hyperbaric pressure can be used to increase cerebral blood flow and help people with traumatic brain injuries and other diseases, while also helping to prepare astronauts for the 200-day travel to Mars in a similar environment. Melissa, thank you for the interesting facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from Gizmodo. The undersea world is another alien environment that humans should be considering exploring as mankind seeks to colonize outer space. These habitats require similar engineering technologies to become sustainably manageable. The sea marks a penultimate final frontier. And here's Narrative B from Popular Science. While research about long underwater living remains limited, known side effects include paleness and reduced vitamin D production from lack of exposure to the sun and damage to circulation systems. A long underwater excursion could possibly show that there are strong negative impacts on human health. And our final nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 95% chance that there will be any progress in human lifespan enhancement by 2100. Okay. I'm not holding my breath on that one. No, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't hold your breath for 70 years. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, May 16th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all all articles agree on, and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Melissa Topshire, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.